to episode 116 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 15th of March, 2021. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Hello. Graham. Good evening. And Will. Hello. And there's too much bad stuff happening in the world, so no jokes up front. Let's get straight on with the news. First one is good news, I think. Steam Link is now available as a flat pack or a tarball for Linux. I thought it had been on Linux for a while. I mean, it's certainly been on Raspberry Pi for some time. So I'm slightly surprised that this is news. I'm also a little bit annoyed that it's only as um, as a flat pack. Although, did you say there was a tarball as well? Yes, in the thread about it, someone said, any chance of a tarball? And uh, someone replied, yes, here's a link. Okay. So in the link in the show notes, follow that to find the link. And yeah, there's a tarball there. Oh, that's encouraging. Last time I played with Steam in-home streaming, I think it is. This is like effectively Steam client to Steam client, doing it from Windows to Linux. It wasn't very successful. They didn't have any video acceleration on Linux, and so it would stream an X264 feed, which would then use CPU to decode it. It wasn't too difficult, but you know, could have been better. So I hope that, that perhaps this addresses some of those shortfalls. I should really try it out. But generally, I think this is good news. I think this will allow people to play a lot of games in a manner that um, they wouldn't be able to otherwise, not, not quite so well. And the other thing is that I've seen with Steam Link is that they've enabled multiplayer. So if you've got like a two-player game that plays on one screen, your second player can play remotely via the Steam client from another machine, uh, be that phone, Linux now, Windows, whatever. So that sounds like good fun. That's genius. I didn't realise it did that. It's actually the, my preferred way of playing games because the PC's noisy um, and you can just go and sit in another room and put it on a television. Although I've not tried Steam Link on a Linux box. And I seem to remember that Valve worked with the Raspberry Pi Foundation to make sure there was acceleration on the Raspberry Pi version because that happened just at the time when they discontinued their like little Steam Link box that they stopped selling. Ah. But I must admit, because I've got NVIDIA hardware, I use uh, Moonlight, which is really, really good. And I've got it installed on one of those Valve boxes, the little Valve Steam Link boxes. And the, the performance and quality is noticeably improved, even with the open source Moonlight client on it. The latency is lower than the... You know how you can see it, especially with skies, where you can kind of see the colour gradation depending on the compression. You don't notice it at all with Moonlight, which uses... NVIDIA's own compression on your GPU. And so what, you just install a Deb on the... Because the Steam Link boxes are Debian boxes, are they? I think they're just small embedded ARM devices. It's basically... Okay. Um, you basically install like a PKG file on there that you kind of boot off a USB stick with the file in a certain folder and it installs itself. And there are Moonlight clients for like Nintendo Wii's and PlayStation Vita's and even unlocked Switches. So it's a really cool client to use if you have NVIDIA hardware. Well, that first generation of Switches where there was the hardware vulnerability that allowed you to crack it. Yeah, I've not kept on top of it, but I think even later versions, depending on the firmware version you're using, there are some vulnerabilities that can be exploited. Right. And so it gives you Steam Link-like functionality then, this Moonlight thing? Yes, it's, it's, in fact, you can run Steam through Moonlight. It basically lets you run any game that runs on your GPU through the GPU encoder and push directly to the Moonlight client. I think it's the Engage um, or the Shield. NVIDIA Shield handheld devices use the protocol which was reverse engineered and then an open source client developed. Right, nice. 
Presumably the PC playing the game has to actually run the game full screen as if you were there. Yeah, it does. Okay. And another thing with Moonlight is it's really good at adapting the screen resolution to the end device, to the client, rather than the actual PC that you're running it on. Any idea how it does with controllers? Because that's what I've always been very impressed with uh, with the Steam client on Linux and on the Steam links, is that you can pair... Uh, a PlayStation 3 controller, and it knows it's a PlayStation 3 controller, and rematch the controls seemingly dynamically. I wonder if Moonlight handles that quite as well. Yeah, good question. I usually actually load Steam from Moonlight, Mm. (laughs) and I've got an Xbox controller, um, so I've never tried anything more esoteric than that. But I, I suspect there'll be problems. I think you're right. So Sousa is preparing for a multi-billion euro IPO, according to Reuters. I bet Mark Shuttleworth's pissed off. Mark's always happy. <laughs> I'm sure he is. I'm sure he is. <laughs> Will spontaneously chokes to death. Because this is going to be early summer, according to these reports, which is pretty damn soon, and very much before Canonical managed it. And it's supposedly going to be 7 or 8 billion euros, this IPO, which, given that EQT bought Sousa from Microfocus for $2.5 billion, it's a tidy profit in a couple of years. So, uh, yeah, obviously they knew what they were doing investing in them. And it goes to show me that we don't really talk about Sousa much because it's, I don't know, really, it's not that interesting <laughs> somehow, but it's evidently doing very well in certain markets, well enough to IPO. It makes me think maybe we should pay Sousa and Open Sousa a bit more attention. <laughs> I haven't used it on the desktop for a very very long time but last time i used it on servers it was going head to head with people like centos so i wonder if that whole debacle has moved people towards Sousa that would otherwise have been on centos for example um but you know it's it's always had a, a reputation for quality perhaps it's never the most bleeding up to date cutting edge version of linux that's out there but it has got that reputation for reliability and They've always had good business relationships behind their product. So I think this is really well-deserved and good on them. Yeah, I mean, I don't know who is using it. I'm not sure. But, I mean, they seem to claim 14% year-on-year increases, 81% cloud increases, and about 35% of the deals are over a million plus. I mean, that's pretty huge numbers. Um, There must be an entire market segment that we just don't see. I think it's just the really boring market segment, isn't it? Just the the enterprise, bank, stuff like that. Yeah, purely anecdotally, whenever I'm in Germany or speaking to Germans, they talk a lot about how Sousa's being used in their banks and lots of their institutions. And not Munich. (laughs) Not anymore, no. But then they were an old version of KDE. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't uh, SAP use it a lot or, or people who used SAP used Sousa as well? I seem to remember, I think Popey telling me that. I might be wrong. Again, yeah, it's just not very exciting, is it? And I think that's why we don't talk about it much on this show and just generally on Linux shows and media. It's just a bit of a boring enterprise distro, but that's good, isn't it? You know, you want to have success there. And that money that's coming into SUSE and Red Hat as well ultimately finds its way into the whole Linux and open source ecosystem, and we all benefit from it, from them hiring developers and all the rest of that. So yeah, it is good on them. And it was a bit of a surprise because I don't really follow SUSE too closely, but this is definitely more good news. 
I'd be interested to hearing from listeners about what they are using SUSE for. Yeah, and whereabouts as well, because I get the feeling that it's a lot of Europe excluding the UK and not much in North America, but I could be wrong. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux to get started with $100 free credit and 60 days to use it. Linode offers cloud computing solutions in data centers all over the world. Whether it's scalable VMs with a choice of major distros or one-click apps and stacks, dedicated CPU and high RAM instances, block and object storage, or cloud firewalls and DDoS protection, Linode has everything you need for your personal projects right up to managed enterprise infrastructure. I recently moved our website over to Linode and it was really straightforward. And when I needed a mumble server for our community meetups, spinning up a new VM for that was an absolute breeze. Everything's been running flawlessly since I set it up and I love the peace of mind I get from the automatic backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, get your $100 credit and check out Linode's great cloud hosting services and first class always available support. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. Canonical made an announcement at a recent event called Flutter Engage that all future desktop applications made by Canonical would be made using Flutter, which is Google's cross-platform SDK. It kind of offers the portability and compatibility and write once run everywhere of Electron, but also has the benefits of being mostly native. Not everyone's happy about this, though. I guess one of the big issues would be when Google is going to kill it or not. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe they already have by the time you listen to this. It's like it's a really bad horse to hit your wagon to. I'm also not really clear on what future desktop applications Canonical are going to be writing. And apologies to Ken, who I love very much. Um, But yeah, I'm interested to know what desktop apps the desktop team or canonical rather would plan on writing in the future the way things were going i think the last thing they announced was a new installer which i don't know if that counts as a desktop application or not but it will be in flutter i think and um you know what else is there on the horizon it's been pretty clear for a long time that canonical are not going to be writing desktop apps so i don't know like so what i suppose yeah it does seem that they're far more interested in virtualization and containers and stuff rather than desktop you know they're not exactly likely to make a music player or something anytime soon are they or a video editor i wouldn't have thought so but maybe they are maybe that's a suggestion that they're gonna burst back onto the desktop scene with a whole suite of exciting new desktop applications for us all open source all in flutter that'd be cool But regardless of that, I think the bigger story here is that there is yet another way of writing Linux desktop apps, which is perhaps a little bit easier than using native GTK or C++ and um, KDE and all of the cute and all of those things. So you can't ever complain that it's a bad thing for the Linux desktop to have more ways of writing desktop applications. Electron, for all its failings, did bring the likes of Spotify to the Linux desktop. Um, And if even a small percentage of Flutter apps for Android, for example, came to the Linux desktop, that would be good news. And if Fuchsia takes off and Fuchsia becomes a Flutter uh, target, and you get all of those apps on the Linux desktop as well, well, then, yeah, that's... A, a big explosion in the number of apps on the desktop. But it's just got that Google dirt all over it, though, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it really does. I mean, 
time for a foundation, methinks. <laughs> Maybe the Linux Foundation could host it, along with everything else they do. You would hate this, Phelan, but actually developing uh, Flutter apps with uh, Visual Studio Code is a really lovely experience. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. All my fingernails just fell out. <laughs> As you update the code, the interpreter works in real time to update the UI. It's, oh, just, it's really nice. <laughs> you are sicking me. <laughs> All right, Phelan, something you wanted to mention was a recent Linux Unplugged episode. Now, full disclosure, I get paid to edit that show. So uh, you should probably talk about how great it was. <laughs> well, I, I don't get paid to listen to it. So I, I enjoyed listening to it the other night when I was on my walk. And uh, yeah, no, it's absolutely fantastic. They get the embedded flight software engineer at NASA's JPL, who is working on the Mars helicopter as the operations lead. And Chris and Wes really, really let him go at it. So they, they, just, they just step out of the way and really let him talk. And he talks loads about all the cool ways that they're getting involved in Linux, uh, how they moved from very embedded VXWorks type stuff it would have been the only ones that would have got uh, the funding before and the chance to try out these these deep project level uh, missions, which are a bit more risky, but to sort of get into new areas. And, you know, it, it's really good. It talks about how they, they got Linux into JPL and um, hopefully we'll get to see some flybys of the, the rover from a Linux powered uh, board. Amazing can't wait to see that it was interesting though how difficult it was to get nasa to accept linux though because of like compliance issues and you know the, the wheels of bureaucracy moving quite slowly i know but i don't think that was anything linux specific though because you used to still see up until two three years ago windows 2000 on laptops up on the international space station they didn't even move to xp or anything higher than that I think they just move really slow because they want to make sure it does its job. And if if they strip it down to doing a particular role, I think they're pretty slow to change in that. I mean, I think you can understand that you don't want your billion dollar space project to go wrong because you've got to update something properly or whatever. Yeah. And um, yeah, like you mentioned, that D-level mission status or whatever, where it's not mission critical, it's like just a bit of a bonus on the mission or whatever. And that's a nice way to sneak Linux in there. And hopefully it'll take root and then eventually everything will be running linux yeah i want to ask him how he, he gets it to wake up at the right time each day given that martian day is about half an hour long and hours mm. what does it do is it count seconds <laughs> what is it do they, it just clocks all the time <laughs> oh, so exciting i'm more intrigued by the idea they seem to have got suspend and resume to work <laughs> <laughs> well let's see about that <laughs> wait till it suspends mid-flight <laughs> Did you close the lid? Oh, what fucking lid? Oh, shit. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Datadog, the monitoring and analytics platform for comprehensive visibility into your Linux environment. By uniting metrics and events from servers, databases, applications, and more, Datadog can easily give you a unified view into your entire infrastructure. Easily identify hidden sources of latency, like overloaded hosts, by monitoring server metrics alongside application data. With machine learning-based alerts and features like anomaly detection, Datadog can also help you to monitor and alert on the health of your servers in real-time without alert fatigue. Start your Datadog trial today by visiting datadog.com slash late-night-linux. Start your free trial, create one dashboard, and you'll get a free Datadog t-shirt. That's datadog.com slash late night Linux. 
on to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone who's supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate it. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And latenightlinux.com slash contact if you want to get in touch with us. And do check out Late Night Linux Extra, episode 17, where we were talking about how to get the next generation of kids into Linux and open source. There was a few ideas floated there. That was from one of the community meetups. And thank you, everyone, who's been coming to that. The next one is going to be on Friday, the 26th of March at 10 p.m. UK time. We tried a Thursday. Let's try another Friday and then maybe decide after that what we're going to do. Maybe alternate, maybe stick to Fridays. We'll see. I don't know. But Friday, 26th of March. 10 p.m. UK time. Be there and be square. Much like Bymon Sci-Fi Con. <laughs> we need to talk about NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Now, I've written here, non-fungible tokens, a passing fad, a serious investment opportunity, or a dystopian nightmare. So what we've got here is, it's blockchain-based. Obviously, it's fucking blockchain-based. Everything is. And it is a way to sell and buy and claim ownership of a digital asset of some description. That could be a JPEG, could be a tweet, it could be music or anything, just something digital. And even though that thing may be copyable, like the fucking deal with it meme, GIF or whatever, and I could just right-click, save it, and then upload it to any other server anywhere, you can claim ownership of it on a blockchain, and then it's like having... A trading card. Like I said, dystopian nightmare. But you don't own the copyright to it, though. So the artist can still own the copyright to the image that you own. Yeah. That makes no sense. <laughs> you could be the artist. You could be the artist and you could you could enter your work into the blockchain and then it's registered who owns your work. Again, I still don't get it. <laughs> Listen, I do. I agree with Joe. It's probably going to be, and it already is, a dystopian nightmare. But... I think what is really interesting is that in this digital age, the copying has just become normal. We've kind of lost the scarcity of what art, works of art used to be. And I think in that way, a bit like, uh, it's a pity that it's, you know, it's the blockchain and everything like that, because ultimately I'm not sure we should even be promoting it. But I do really like the idea of bringing scarcity into digital media. Um, I was just like... I remember when I was like ages ago, this is like 25 years ago, I used to be into like William Gibson, the author, and he, he wrote a, a book of poetry called Agrippa. And this was back in the Usenet days. And it was like a work of art. And, and it came on a floppy disk that was designed to encrypt the poem after you've read it once. <laughs> and that, that has always really stayed in my mind. It was just like such a brilliant thing to do. Of course, it was copied. It was copied and you can find it everywhere now. But the idea of that, I thought, was really cool in the digital age where, you know, the only other option is to physically make something. It also can prove you're the first. I mean, I was thinking of making some art out of... Um, YouTube thumbnails of people with their mouths agape and pointing at things. <laughs> <laughs> and I could do that and then be the first, get it into the Ethereum blockchain. And, you know, I'd be widely recognized as the person with that idea. Could I change one pixel and then say I own that one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but where this falls down is when people essentially steal other people's shit and try and sell it. Of course, you've got to find some way of linking it to an, a real identity. I and mean, that's a problem that we've still got everywhere. Um, if that can be done, 
if if you know if you've got a gpg key that can be i mean we could do it it it, it worries me that you know nba players may not be able to do it there's a post by terence eden on his blog where he talks about how bullshit this whole thing is and he just tears the whole thing apart like people were trying to sell his tweets and he's like no fuck off you can't sell my tweets they're mine yeah but i think that's a completely different side of it i mean that that's totally insane i completely agree but if if you were an artist and you worked to create a piece of music or a piece of digital art and you wanted to sell the rights to that and you did that by using an nft that was put into the ethereum blockchain Whatever ha- happens, however that's copied, the person who's bought that from you, the artist, is, has some kind of proof of ownership. Where I struggle to make sense of it is if you were a digital artist working on the internet and you produced this masterpiece that you were thought was good enough to sell, why would you not print it out and the person who was buying it own a physical thing? I, I really struggle with this sort of a concept of internet things, like you can buy a skin for a character with real money, I don't see the appeal of it. So perhaps I'm just an old man. And is this an extension of that? Or, or, or what, you know, why, if I wanted to own a piece of art, why would I not want a, a physical object? I think you're right. I think ultimately all this is going to be done is all that's going to happen is it will be exploited by games companies and other, other kind of people to make these kind of parts of some gambling add on. But, these days kind of musicians and other people are having more of a one-to-run relationship with the people that listen to their music and this allows you to kind of sign 10 copies of an mm. album and, and those 10 people support you in that way but you don't know do you what, what do you mean you don't actually sign the thing do you it's like me <laughs> sending you an email saying a jpeg of my signature yeah. <laughs> you could master a single version just for somebody for example in the audio realm i just i don't see how that's any different to like a, a a limited edition vinyl. Because as a collector, I could have that rare limited piece of vinyl in my house, and that would give me a sense of, uh, let's say, achievement, that I was such a good collector that I had collected that thing that nobody else had collected. And, you know, I would sit and look at it in my house. Whereas if it was a copy of an MP3 or something, then uh, I, I don't, I don't understand. I'm too old for this. It just seems like a con to me. It seems like the marketing people have thought of a good way of screwing a few kids out of some money. It's got blockchain in the uh, title. What did you expect? <laughs> Look, I, I do think you're right that ultimately it's going to rip off many people. But I do think I, I really like the idea of its uniqueness, the fact that there's some way of ensuring scarcity in, in digital media. I can't be the only person in the world who has never heard scarcity pronounced as scarcity before, Graham. <laughs> scarcity. Is that because it scars you terribly? Yeah. Um, it, do you not think this is a, a sort of like, we have things like Patreon where you could actually fund artists. You know, imagine they took some of that money that they were trying to invest. But typical humans, it's only because we think we can make a load of money and be the only person to have it, is the fact that so many millions have already passed hands at this point. We are pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Poppy absolutely nailed it on Twitter as far as I'm concerned. NFT is an immoral grift by crypto peddling chances. End of. <laughs> that, that is a great t-shirt quote, I think. <laughs> yeah. I, I do think, Graham, that it does have some potential for artists to sell their stuff in a, a weirdly dystopian novel way. 
And I read an article that said that there's like underrepresented artists who are taking advantage of this, and that is good. But the problem is that it seems far too open to be exploited at the moment, and I can't see an easy way to stop that exploitation from happening. Yeah, I agree. I think it's like a proof of concept. I don't like the association with blockchain, but you know, maybe it's a bit like we needed to have diesel cars before we invented electric cars. Mm. But blockchain as a technology is not inherently bad or dodgy. All it is is a distributed database. Yeah, but we've not been able to replace the proof of work with something that doesn't, you know, burn electricity for no reason. Well, there's some, you know, proof of stake and proof of space on hard drives and stuff. But yeah, I mean, that's another aspect of this, isn't it? That environmentally, Mm. it's pretty hard to justify. Yeah, and I agree with that, yeah. Unless, of course, you're powering it all via renewable energy, which a lot of the blockchain stuff is. A lot of the mining and stuff is done with cheap renewable energy. Well, I I don't want to go real William Gibson and say maybe quantum computing would allow these kind of um, contracts to exist much easier um, with the uncertainty principle. (laughs) I have a solution. Every time somebody shares the JPEG, they have to re Lossy encoder again. (laughs) (laughs) Job done. I haven't looked too deeply, and I know that the media actually has to be part of the blockchain, but I don't see why a signature couldn't be part of the blockchain so that you could be the sole owner of the digital creation, um, and it doesn't have to be shared. But if you are spending $2.5 million to buy Jack's first tweet... And it's not even mm. really buying it, just to, to be able to say that you own it on some... Yeah. yeah like, what the fuck? Like, that makes no sense. <laughs> I agree. It's bullshit Ponzi, just the same as Bitcoin <laughs> has become. Yeah. I get what you're saying, and I do get your devil's advocate position here. And I'm sure that we'll get people who are experts in this, real crypto enthusiasts, saying, oh, no, you're all wrong, and X, Y, and Z. I can't wait. Well, well, you know, I welcome it. It's, you know, we read all your emails. We don't necessarily read them all out. But, you know, if you want to defend this and tell us it's not just a, a fucked up dystopian scam, then we're all ears. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com. Entroware sells computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate pre-installed. They've got a range of desktops, laptops, and servers, and most parts are configurable, so you can pick the CPU, RAM, and storage that's right for you. If you can't find exactly what you want, then do contact them, and they'll work with you on a bespoke solution that's perfect for your needs. They ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And if you do buy one of their machines, there's a little drop-down at checkout, and you can select late-night Linux so they'll know that we sent you. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. Right, quick KDE corner then before we get out of here. What's this first one? Eliza on the desktop and the phone. You could say convergence with a K. Yes, you could. Ha ha ha. Yeah, no, it's just the ever-growing mo- uh, move of apps to both phone and desktop. Uh, it's quite good to see. So yeah, uh, Eliza the music app has done that now as well. So uh, people with those Pine phones enjoy, I guess. Yeah, because the UI has been able to scale pretty well between desktop and mobile, but now the apps are catching up is what you're telling me here. Essentially, yeah. And um, I, yeah, I just wish I had one of those phones. Oh, well, maybe one day. And what's this save and load plasma config? 
it's funny. It's a nifty thing. You often hear people say, oh, you know, I want to change all of stuff and save it. Thing. Uh, Nico Love has been doing a video series of how to tweak and uh, theme Plasma Desktop uh, without needing to know any code or do any graphics. And uh, it's just a follow-on on that video. And it's a, it's a little plugin that he's using then to, to modify and change, essentially making themes. And uh, I think it's quite good. And I think people should take a look if they fancy giving it a whirl. Because yeah, he made a video before about making a theme, didn't he, that required no code, just hours and hours in GIMP. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be realistic. There's definitely got to be graphics involved in it. But uh, yeah, yeah no, you don't have to get stuck into the nuts and bolts of it all. So it's quite cool. And Frameworks 5.80 is out. This is the underneath uh, framework libraries for everything on Plasma Desktop and uh, latest update to that. Loads and loads of bug fixes, a load of Kirigami stuff to help with mobile dev and uh, yeah, lots of fixes. So update if you've got it. Right, well, we better get out of here then. We'll be back next week. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.